Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, today was a very cool day. We had Vitalik Buterin onto the podcast. I feel like we're checking off every single person that was on our bucket list when we started this pod a year and a half ago. We have had an absolutely knockout lineup recently with our previous episodes. We recently had Jake Shinisky on to talk all about DeFi and law, talking about the subjects of is code law and where do humans and robots meet when it comes to how our value is managed, uh, which was a nice follow-up to our episode with uh, Nick Carter, where we kind of talk about how crypto systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum are like our instantiations of values, of a, a way to express our values about how the world should be or behave or look like. And there's been a couple of other great episodes even before those. And, and each one of these episodes has really changed or impacted how I think about at least one facet, if not multiple, of the way crypto works or the, or the crypto world. So I'm really excited to get Vitalik on here to really finish this incredible series of good guests in a, what seems to be a constant through line between all of them and to get his own point of view about the way blockchain systems work and, and how they come to manifest in the world around us. Christian, what did we talk about in this episode that really resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was cool just to like really try to dig down how concerned is uh, Vitalik about uh, centralized exchanges being a part of the staking process, uh, talking about is he concerned about not being able to coordinate hard forks uh, as long as he may he may think Ethereum needs to, how he thinks uh, of Ethereum moving into the future, and how he sees Ethereum and Bitcoin kind of interacting moving forward. So I think POV Crypto is delivering on what you guys come here for, is we ask the questions and have the conversations that no one else can have because, uh, you know, we have two biases. <laughs> Two different perspectives. It's as if our, our the title of our podcast is Point of View Crypto. The, the last thing I think that was really valuable to talk to uh, Vitalik about was when he would say, give an answer, it would be a relatively Bitcoiner answer. And even one of his answers about, uh, I think it was talking about hard forking Ethereum, he was like, what his answer was summarized, I think Ethereum, when it comes to hard forks, should become more like Bitcoin over time. Uh, and, and so I, I think we forget uh, that you know Vitalik was first and foremost a Bitcoiner uh, before he created Ethereum, and so a lot of those same values are reflected and instantiated in in Ethereum and and what he thinks about it. Um, so before we get into the podcast, we got to talk about Quantstamp. Quantstamp is the leading smart contract auditing firm in the crypto space. Literally billions and billions of dollars has flowed through applications on Ethereum that Quantstamp themselves has audited. When I was a crypto novice, I initially thought that auditing was just going through the code and making sure all the code was good and there were no typos. But Quantstamp really goes above and beyond with an economic audit as well. And so if your DeFi application is also at risk to something like a uh, an illiquidity squeeze on an asset, uh, they, they will also look at that as well. So it's both code and also, you know, an economic viability audit. We saw, we saw this failure with the BZX hack uh, a while back. 
So if you are building something on Ethereum, it is your responsibility to keep that thing safe, especially if it manages users' funds. And so go to expertaudits.com and request an audit from the company that also audited MakerDAO, Chainlink, pull together RDAI, really all the best DeFi protocols, applications on Ethereum. Uh, so check them out at expertaudits.com. And without further ado, let's just get right into the episode with Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. It's good to be here. So we have a, a pretty awesome episode lined up, a, a bunch of different topics, like all kind of focusing around your opinion as to some of the common themes of the space. Uh, we're going to touch on the topic of uh, your opinion on the competition to be internet money. Is that, a, is that a, what the competition between Bitcoin and Ethereum is? Is that the right way to pitch it? Are there other things to consider? Uh, and then the topic of money and fairness and Ether. Uh, and then we want to go into uh, the long-term relationship between Ethereum and hard forks and your opinion with that. Uh, and then also just uh, defining Ethereum's social contract and then some other things like EIP-1559 and proof of work and the whole gamut. All right, so let's start with the first one. So uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, have their native assets defined as digital money. And so what is your opinion on like, the competition for internet money and how does and is that even the right representation of what's going on between bitcoin and ethereum i mean internet money is definitely kind of one way of uh, phrasing the place where the entire cryptocurrency space started you know with uh, satoshi and nakamoto's 2009 white paper and peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash and then people talking about digital gold and uh, payments and store of value and all of these things and I tend to not like the word money that much because the word money kind of brings together a lot of uh, fairly different notions. And it's uh, like it has as much meaning in it as it does a kind of weird, almost quasi-religious connotation. Like when someone is saying, you know, ETH is money or ETH is not money, like are they making a, a claim about whether or not Ether has certain properties in terms of its ability to use it as a, a store of value or as a medium of exchange. Is it just a, a, just a way of saying yay Ethereum and yay Ether? Does it mean something else? And it changes uh, depending on the context, right? So you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are, they're sometimes trying to do the same thing and they're also sometimes uh, trying to do different things. Like, I think the thing that they share in common, and one of them is just trying to create this uh, kind of common decentralized uh, base layer that um, other things can uh, kind of sit on top of and that uh, applications can plug into in a lot of uh, different ways. Um, but the differences might be in, uh, say, what applications are emphasized, right? So in the case of Bitcoin, you know, you have Bitcoin, the currency, and then there's a store of value aspect, and then there's... Uh, the payments aspect, either through the Lightning Network or through some kind of federated or centralized uh, system built on top of it. In the case of Ethereum, you know, there's all of the different smart contract applications. Then if you try to zoom into uh, BTC versus uh, ETH, uh, the asset, and kind of the role that the asset has uh, 
in relation to the entire system. I mean, there's some differences, right? So I feel like a lot of Bitcoin people often have the mindset that the blockchain is there to support the currency. As in the there's definitely more people who are in a thing along the line and the currency support uh, supporting the blockchain. And, and there's definitely some of both, but there's definitely a kind of relatively speaking less emphasis to and of the whole thing just being there in order to preserve a particular unit. But and then there's also distinctions around like are you trying to be a digital gold type thing or are you trying to also and if work harder to make it possible to make uh, higher layers of uh, the stack kind of decentralized directly on top of the base platform as well. So you, you did mention that in your, you like to avoid the term money just because you think that it's a loaded term to some degree. In your definition, what, what are these things and like what is the most concise way of kind of viewing Ether or, or Bitcoin as an asset? And do they compete? Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so... I think uh, crypto assets in general can have a few different functions. So one of them is the store of value function, which basically means that I have value and I buy some and I have the goal of buying some so that I can hold my money in that or hold my wealth in that asset for a fairly long period of time, um, either to benefit from that asset's monetary properties. So like, for example, having a kind of lower inflate issuance uh, or kind of a guaranteed issuance schedule uh, and or just uh, kind of the, you know, the guarantee that arbitrary amounts that can't just randomly be created or possibly for the assets uh, technological properties particularly kind of base layer censorship resistance right like it's uh, much harder to for say a government to seize uh, crypto assets than it is for them to seize most uh, other kinds of assets so That's a store value use case, and that's one of the things that we, I think, consider as being part of the money umbrella. And there's also the payments and medium of exchange aspect. So this could be just using cryptocurrency to pay for things. So, for example, just yesterday I uh, used uh, Ether to uh, pay for uh, an annual subscription to the block. Uh, So I definitely end up using cryptocurrency to pay for things from time to time, and that's also another category of use case. There's also the, uh, a third one, which is the ability to use cryptocurrency as collateral in applications, and which could be centralized, which could be decentralized. So basically, the idea is that you have some assets and you put them into some kind of smart contract or some other kind of system, and you get those assets back only if you don't misbehave in some way or alternatively you kind of normally get those assets back but if something very exceptional happens then one of your assets can be uh, called upon for whatever reason right so a lot of DeFi applications work in this way a lot like escrow type systems work in this way so those things are also a use something that we would consider money as well and then the fourth is also just a kind of utility token within the platform itself uh, so I would not call this be, as being part of uh, kind of money per se, but it is part of what cryptocurrency is what you do, right? So you can use Bitcoin or Ether to send uh, or pay for transaction fees within the uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum networks. Uh, or you can um, in the future stake Ether and you can get staking rewards uh, for, uh, <clears throat> from it. Uh, you can... Mm, potentially use it uh, use cryptocurrencies for other functions in 
other networks. Like I know some of the DPOS ones have kind of more complicated uh, features in terms of what you can do if you have some particular coin balance. So I think those four probably the kind of most important ones. And, and, and there's also the fifth one, which is a unit of account. But I guess up until now, there aren't really many people using cryptocurrency as a unit of account. And I actually see that kind of persisting for a fair way long term. Uh, but you know, if cryptocurrencies do to uh, end up like really wildly succeeding, then it's definitely a possibility more people start using them for that function too. Can you comment on kind of like this battle for global liquidity? Um, ultimately, something won't really be an effective medium of an exchange globally or a unit account until it is extremely liquid and can reliably, you know, be expected that it's desired. Uh, how, I mean, in my opinion, I think that Bitcoin is extremely competitive for, you know, this, this fight for global liquidity. Uh, you know, do you think that there's a competition between liquidity? How do you think that Bitcoin, Ethereum, other cryptocurrencies could become, you know, globally liquid? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there's definitely a fight for liquidity in the sense that there's that some uh, kind of audiences that ultimately have to choose whether they have their money in one asset or another asset or whether they move their money into one asset or another asset. And there's kind of a competition for which asset uh, that money moves into and gets uh, stored inside. So that definitely is true. Um, and I think it's definitely kind of more forgiving than some other network effect because and if, if you start out smaller, then you're still liquid enough for kind of many kinds of smaller transactions and you can kind of grow and work your way up. So I guess I feel like it's it's more forgiving than something like a social network, for example, where unless you already have a, a fairly large base of users, it's very difficult to get started. And I think with the currency, it's, with, with the network effects that kind of specifically come from things like liquidity and volume, more is definitely better, but there does exist this kind of path that you can take to kind of slowly go um, up and up and get higher and higher value transactions that happening using an asset over time. So in the same theme of, of fairness and money and, and liquidity, uh, mm-hmm. Bitcoiners often ping or knock Ethereum for, you know, it can't, it can't ever be global money because money is a fairness. Uh, the, the goodness of what money is, uh, is mediated by how fair a currency is. And if you have an ICO or a pre-mine, it's therefore not fair. And the Bitcoin immaculate conception is like this fairness shield of armor that it has. How do you, how do you feel about that argument when it comes to like, can Ether be global money or can it not be because of the, of the inherent nature of what happens with a pre-mine or an ICO? And it, it does, is that disqualifying in any particular way for Ether as like a global money? Or is that even just a, is that even just a valid thing to, is, that, is, is it even a valid premise? And I definitely think that uh, kind of fairness of the initial conditions of an asset are important. And I mean, I think you can definitely give uh, kind of many examples that people on the Bitcoin and the Ethereum sides would agree with, you know, things like uh, XRP for example. Example where Ripple, the company, owns like the bulk of the asset, and uh, or some of the DPoS chains, and you know, God forbid, Tron, and all of those. Like, I definitely think that the extremely high concentrations uh, that exist in those cases definitely make it harder to even bootstrap a community, for example. And I, between uh, a kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I think so. 
the, on the Ethereum side, there is a kind of two parts to the uh, allocation that existed at Genesis, right? So there was the uh, the 12 million um, coins that went to the Ethereum Foundation and the kind of uh, 100 uh, earliest uh, Ethereum contributors. And you can fairly reasonably argue that that was pretty much a centralized allocation and we just picked who the money goes to. Uh, the 60 million, on the other hand, that was a very widely advertised open process where anyone could just send Bitcoin to a particular address and there was even a computer program that you could run that just directly scans the Bitcoin blockchain and then you constructed the Ethereum Genesis block, right? So in that sense, and I definitely consider the Ethereum sale quite fair um, as far as uh, token sales go. And especially like for, for example, the fact that instead of uh, requiring you to have a very particular kind of hardware, it's basically just if you have coins, then you can just go in and participate. And so and there's, there's benefits to both, right? So like uh, in, in the Bitcoin case, it definitely uh, benefited from this very unique period of time when not many people knew about it, which you, you can actually argue is another kind of unfairness. But at the same time, it does mean that there was this period where mining actually was this kind of reasonably egalitarian way of uh, getting coins. And that's not something that any uh, currency that existed um, after Bitcoin can realistically replicate. Right. And, and, and some people have tried, right? And even if you look at Zcash, for example, they tried the whole kind of start the supply from zero thing. And it ended up just leading to at least what I see as being very terrible consequences because the problem is the supply started at zero, but the attention started like way high. And so at the beginning, you had lots of attention, almost zero supply. And so the price kind of bubbled up because there wasn't really a way to safely short it. And so basically the price started at, well, for a couple of seconds, $3 million, but then more reasonably for about for a while, it was at $1,000. And then it just kind of kept on predictably going down, down and down for about a year. So for any cryptocurrency that's launch, the launching mm -hmm. after around 2013 or 14 or so, I think uh, and having a pre-mine is definitely kind of by far a, a less bad approach. And I mean, by pre-mine, I mean kind of the entire category of things. Could be a pre-mine, could be a sale, could be an airdrop, could be some combination. Now, and so, but at the same time, there is the argument of kind of does Bitcoin get advantages from the fact that it was around at the beginning and it did have this uh, unique opportunity? And on the one hand, yes, but, and as I mentioned, on the other hand, the fact that half the supply, uh, half the supply was mined before a significant uh, percentage of the population had even heard of cryptocurrency, you can argue is a pretty significant mark against it as well. So I, mean, I see points on both sides. So you, you kind of touched on it, but I want to hammer on it one more, a little bit more. So what value do you place on Bitcoin's immaculate conception? Or is that more of just like a narrative story that's spun by the Bitcoin camp? I mean, ultimately, everything is a narrative story to some extent, right? Like, the, the fact that some particular thing happened historically doesn't uh, kind of directly make uh, Bitcoin a, a better medium of exchange or store of value of any of these things. Like it only leads to that consequence because people, like, people have this idea in their heads that something can kind of become a shelling point more easily if it's neutral and Bitcoin has these properties that lets you argue that it's neutral. And so that itself kind of creates this possibility, uh, 
possibility that people will recognize it more easily. So ultimately, these things are kind of all narratives, and they and they kind of get filtered through people's heads. So if you imagine a parallel universe where there was, say, a culture that just did not care about neutrality at all, then and I think Bitcoin would definitely fare significantly uh, significantly worse. But so the difference between that parallel world and our world is basically how much we in our heads rate the importance of uh, particular stories. But you know, I think that's fine. Like cryptocurrencies are ultimately kind of these completely digital emergent um, assets whose value is just dependent on these uh, kind of facts existing in our heads. And to me, honestly, that's a really beautiful thing. Kind of on the same on the same tip, uh, proof of work is relatively fair way to distribute coins and kind of diffuse uh, the total supply. Uh, do you see benefits for Ethereum starting off as proof of work and switching to proof of stake? Does that change the dynamic at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, uh, and as I mentioned, right during the uh, kind of golden age, as I call it, two thousand and nine to two thousand and thirteen. I think proof of work was a really uh, actually egalitarian way of uh, distributing uh, coins around. Now, with the caveat, as I mentioned, that the fact that only a tiny portion of uh, the population even knew that the thing existed is not the most egalitarian thing. But aside from that, you know, anyone has a computer. If you have a computer, you can just go and participate. But after 2013, you know, we saw the GPU revolution for about a year, and then after that, immediately once we pretty much almost skipped FPGAs, went straight to the ASIC revolution. And once you have ASICs, then a lot of the fairness arguments, I think, breaks down pretty quickly because it's no longer that anyone can go and participate if they have a computer. It's that, oh, now you have to either have $10 million of your own money to set up a fab and do the entire process and start mining, or you pay money to some other company that does. And possibly that company on route to shipping just delay is uh, giving you the ASIC mm-hmm. layout two months and when you receive it you discover that they actually use that two months to just to spend a whole bunch of uh, time mining on it themselves right and uh, this is the sort of stuff that actually happened back then so I definitely don't see ASIC mining as being a particularly egalitarian thing and this is the sort of thing that motivated Ethereum uh, being uh, a uh, ASIC resistant uh, proof-of-work system as opposed to an ASIC friendly proof-of-work system at the beginning I definitely do think that the fact that Ethereum has had this uh, proof-of-work phase for issuance is a positive thing. And it does basically mean that instead of issuance having this kind of one big source, which is, did you participate in the sale? Instead, it's, uh, you know, you have in total about 110 million coins, 12 million were a pre-mine, 60 million were a sale, and then a Mm -hmm. uh, remaining um, 38 million could get mined. And uh, uh, there's... uh, some millions more that are going to get get mines before the proof of stake switch. So it definitely does lead to a more balanced distribution. But I definitely think that with uh, every passing year, the the value of a proof of work as a distribution mechanism kind of keeps getting lower. So it was this kind of one time dividend, and we uh, took advantage of it, and that was great. But it's definitely you know, getting to this mature phase where it loses some of those benefits. So what about proof of stake and distribution? Because proof of stake doesn't really distribute it, distribute coins at all. Correct. Yeah. So at least with proof of work, you're forced to sell, right? At, like I think that beyond how you feel about ASICs, at least 
um, you know, the coins actually have to be distributed through the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's definitely true. And proof of stake is not a distribution mechanism. Um, and though that said, if you're, one of the reasons why we're doing a proof of stake is because we want to greatly reduce the issuance. Um, and the issuance is significantly going down, right? So in the specs for uh, ETH 2.0, I think we have put out a, a, a calculation that the theoretical maximum issuance would be something like 2 million ETH a year. And that's if like literally everyone participates. But if more realistic amounts of uh, people participate, then it could be much lower, right? So for example, if you look at the amount of ETH participating currently on the 2.0 testnet, the issuance is something like 100,000 ETH every year. And, and so that realistically, it'll be somewhere between 100,000 and a million ETH a year compared to about 4.7 million ETH today, right? And and so issue like the new effects of issuance, like whether it's proof of work or proof of stake, are going to be pretty negligible, right? And in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is uh, kind of moving toward this pre-programmed uh, hard cap with um, its having coming in about two weeks. And so in about 10 or 20 years, the bulk of new issued assets are just uh, going to be um, these, or so, well, sorry, I mean, the bulk of uh, income going to miners is not going to be newly issued assets, it's going to be transaction fees, right? So, the, and the transaction fees are not very high. It's like something like, was it 50, 70 million dollars a year compared to a $100 billion market cap, something like that. So, basically, kind of new coins being issued as a thing, just the amount of practical economic relevance that it has in both of these long-term scenarios ends up being fairly low. And, and there's definitely a part of me that's kind of very egalitarian and would like to see a kind of some kind of fair and more ongoing distribution. But the problem is that it's hard to come up with the mechanisms that are both uh, kind of not plutocratic, but at the same time uh, are actually decentralized. Um, at least a few and if stick to mechanisms that are completely anonymous, which is some a uh, kind of property that uh, cryptocurrency people generally want to kind of retain because, well, we don't really have uh, decentralized uh, non-anonymity that we can rely on anyway. Again, sticking on the theme of, of uh, economics issuance and, and fairness, can you, uh, before we get into uh, deeper subjects, could you like summarize EIP 1559's impact on Ether? Ether's economics. How would you how would you describe its influence or change to the economic policy or monetary policy of Ether? Sure. So EIP one five five nine is this uh, proposal to reform how the fee market works in Ethereum, where basically instead of just having this auction, where in on average blocks pretty much always get filled, and uh, basically people send transaction fees to kind of bid, and you have wildly different transaction fees get included in every single block. And instead, there is this base fee parameter that the protocol charges. Um, and basically, when you send a transaction, you're, you send your transaction fee, and there's two components, where one of those components is a tip, which uh, goes to the miner and basically just compensates the miner for their tiny amount of work in uh, kind of verifying that transaction and accepting the risk of mining a slightly bigger block. But the rest of it is uh, this base fee, which instead of going to the miner, just gets burned, right? And the reason why we, um, we're doing this is basically that the base fee gets automatically adjusted to target 
um, on average at 10 million gas, but the block size is not always 10 million gas. Like it might be 14 million one block, 6 million the next block, 13 million in the next block, then 5 million and then 9 million. And so instead of having volatility in transaction fees, we have uh, volatility in block size. And there's a bunch of kind of deep economic reasons why volatility in block size, at least within reasonable bounds, is much less bad than volatility in transaction fees, right? Like transaction fee markets, there's just huge uh, kind of market failures in them that I don't think people appreciate. So like, for example, on average, uh, last time I uh, did the calculation, the fee that people pay to put their Ethereum transaction into a block is something like five times higher than the theoretically required minimum fee, right? So it's like a market where it's very hard to kind of set your fee um, optimally. As so, and there's also this uh, kind of very horrible consequence that people who um, aren't willing to pay a large amount often just end up waiting to get a transaction included. But in reality, that waiting doesn't actually help anyone, right? Like the network doesn't actually benefit because it had to take the burden of processing a transaction one minute later, later instead of one minute earlier. And, and so 1559, by kind of shifting the volatility from transaction fee volatility to block size volatility, affects this. Now, as a consequence, it has this property that there's transaction fees that get burned. Now, I, mean, I will kind of add a bit of an asterisk that I mean, there's still discussions and there's still like, for example, the possibility that part of the transaction fees will get burned and part of the transaction fees will be kind of paid out to miners in a, a way that like, instead of going to the immediate miner, it might go to like an average of the last 10,000 miners or something like this. But in either case, there'd be a significant uh, kind of part of uh, transaction fees or probably the bulk of transaction fees that just gets burned, right? And what this means is that there exists a mechanism by which the supply theoretically could go down. And so if a demand for sending Ethereum transactions ends up being durably very high, then we could even see um, a possible scenario where the transaction fees that get burned uh, from uh, this EAP1559 mechanism are greater than the amount that get issued through proof of stake. And so mm -hmm. the supply of, of ETH could even end up going down over time if there's enough usage. I'm curious if you have thought, like, could there be any negative externalities from this? And uh, just kind of lead that a little bit further. Um, a lot of people in like the Austrian camp and the Bitcoin camp uh, would go as far as saying that a mechanism that destroys the monetary supply is actually destructive to the ecosystem as well. So I, mean, I guess the, the way that I would reply to that argument, right, is that if you're an Austrian, then you probably believe that 0% annual issuance is better than 1% annual issuance. And if you believe that 0% annual issuance is better than 1% annual issuance, then unless you have some reason to believe that it's like some quadratic curve or zero is an optimum, you should also expect negative 1% issuance to be better than 0% issuance, right? So the fact that coins are being destroyed, like theoretically, should make the value of, uh, of the remaining coins go up even faster. I guess I'm just trying to think from like an economic calculations perspective, like there's mm -hmm. probably nothing better than having a fixed supply, right? Because then you can reliably use it to measure value. If the supply is constantly changing, um, doesn't, right. I mean, it kind of, we find ourselves in a situation now where we can't allocate capital effectively. Right, no, 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 I'm aware that's the Austrian argument. Um, 
So I guess I'd probably say, uh, to go back to the point that I made a bit earlier, where basically transaction fees are ultimately going to be like 0.1% of uh, a coin's uh, total supply every year or something like this, right? And the difference between 0% issuance plus 0.2% issuance and minus 0.2% issuance is realistically very tiny, right? Like even like the US dollar, for example, right? It just, and they just printed like a huge amount very recently. And if they can print a huge amount and the economy doesn't just collapse immediately, then that by itself, I think, implies that if you print a huge amount divided by a thousand, then the effect either way should be kind of pretty negligible. Vitalik, a while ago on the uh, Into the Ether live stream, we brought up the conversation of what if the EF staked in Ethereum 2.0 and, and thoughts on that. Has, has anything progressed in that realm? Has any, has, what are the conversations surrounding the, the EF staking in Ethereum 2.0? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had uh, kind of internal uh, discussions uh, about this, and and there's definitely a kind of different uh, positions either way. Um, though, and I don't feel like uh, there's people that are kind of really, really dead set um, in uh, either direction. And I guess my own view on this question is that I think that EF should commit to staking about the same percentage of its money that the entire Ethereum ecosystem stakes altogether. So like, for example, if there's a total of 110 million Ether and 11 million stake, then that means the EF should also stake 10% of its own Ether. And my argument for this is that it's basically a kind of conflict of interest minimizing neutrality, that it basically doesn't give us any incentive to kind of manipulate the proof of stake uh, parameters in either a downward or an upward direction. And there's other people who argue that the Ethereum Foundation should stake more because it's... it has uh, been kind of pushing uh, Ethereum 2.0 and proof of stake uh, kind of very hard and, and, it, and it should uh, kind of stake more of its uh, coins there and just as a signal of confidence. Uh, it, those are probably the main two positions. And there's also some people that uh, recommend the, the EF staying out, but I think uh, I would expect the most likely thing is that uh, it, it ends up staking some. What's the place for like trust in the EF? Because I mean, clearly, the entire Ethereum community has to place a massive amount of trust that you, you and the EF will act uh, in their best interest. And uh, in this kind of transition, you know, the an example can be just have room to decide how much you're going to stake, and it's kind of up to you. Like, you know, where do you think of like that dynamic? You know, how does that play out, and is that positive or negative? So just to clarify, do you mean people trusting the EF to kind of honest, be honest in making uh, protocol decisions and not make protocol decisions to break the protocol? Or do you mean the EF trusting the EF not to just stake everything and then use that to break the network? I mean, I, I don't assume that the EF is trying to break the network, but you could assume that the individuals in the EF are just looking out for themselves, right? And right. there is trust that they will not do that, that they will act egalitarian in the best interests of everyone. Yeah, so I guess to answer the kind of, this is, well, the second concern that I raised, and we can expand that from the EF to the possibility of, uh, of individuals in general, the uh, amount of ether that the Ethereum Foundation has right now is somewhere around 590,000. Uh, so there would needs to be very few people staking for the EF to have the ability to kind of get all the way up to one third and actually be able to cause significant damage to the network. So if you're concerned about 
um, we end up with large holders uh, breaking proof of stake by just directly attacking proof of stake, then I would be more concerned about exchanges uh, than it would be about the Ethereum Foundation. Um, and then for the first question, like, what about people kind of trusting the EF while it's uh, kind of still fig figuring out um, all of the side details of the Ethereum 2.0 protocol? I mean, that's definitely a challenge um, in any one of these projects. Like, it's a decentralized system, but that's only you know, once the thing has been built and deployed. Like, what, what about uh, is it kind of rapid ongoing development before then? And, and there's definitely a limit to how much we can do. Uh, but, you know, we try our best, like we try our best to have a very open research and development process. We try our best to kind of invite uh, a lot of feedback from the outside and to make it very easy to read uh, what the current specification is and what the arguments are for as many of the uh, decisions uh, that we made as possible. So I feel like we try to do what we can, but at the same time, I mean, it, there's definitely limits when we're talking about creating a new protocol. Mm -hmm. So you briefly mentioned the, the topic of uh, exchanges staking and how that represents a threat that's a way, way larger than the EF doing anything malicious, uh, which is, I think, an unsolved problem. Uh, there's uh, loads of Ether on exchanges, and exchanges are going to in, be inherently incentivized to offer staking services to their customers. Uh, how, do, how do you think the long-term relationship between proof-of-stake and centralized exchanges plays out? No, this is a, a very good point. Um, so there's a couple of uh, ways to look at this, right? So one way is that we we know roughly how much Ether the biggest exchanges have, and it's somewhere in the millions, right? It's like three, five, seven million Ether, somewhere in that range. And so if we can get the absolute amount of Ether being staked to be at least double that, then that limits the ability of any individual exchange to uh, break the network. So that's one way to look at it. Another, a second way to look at it is, well, even if the Ethereum network does get 33% or 51% attack, that's not the end of the world, right? The network can fork, it can kind of continue moving on from there, and an attack is going to leave evidence about who participated, and who, anyone who participated in an attack can get slashed after the fact, right? So in, in the worst case, there could even be a fork that just basically does not allow uh, any of the anyone who uh, participated in an attack to participate in staking anymore at all, and if that happens, then their entire deposits would potentially drain away. Right? So, in that sense, and there's definitely this kind of new nuclear button in the hands of, uh, I guess, ultimately the community. The community, if uh, the chain ends up breaking to a 51% attack, and so I definitely don't expect the exchanges to want to even try to collude to do such a thing. So that's basically kind of the same sort of argument that you see as to why, for example, mining pools uh, don't uh, kind of collude to 51% attack Bitcoin, except in the proof of stake case, your potential losses are even higher, right? It's like, instead of hundreds of millions of dollars, you're talking about billions of dollars. And then a third way that you could potentially look at it is that like we could try to encourage the ecosystem to move toward a model that relies less on people holding them all of their ETH inside of exchanges. And, and that could involve like non-custodial models, um, like a loop ring or Starkex or those kinds of models and could 
um, included partially custodial models, like basically trying to kind of build the tools to nudge the ecosystem to move uh, into a direction that trusts exchanges with huge amounts of money less. And that's uh, something that I think would be healthy for the ecosystem in, in, in any case. But I guess, and ultimately the ecosystem is something that we can influence, but we can't control. So that can't be the only pillar, but it's also a direction that it's possible to try pushing. So I definitely want to kind of dive into this a little bit more. Uh, it sounds like essentially what you told me or you told us is that uh, if there is collusion, then uh, slashing will take care of that. Uh, I, I guess kind of two things. First, exchanges as centralized entities may not want to collude. They may be forced to collude, right? They're just, it's just a centralized entity that has power over the network. Um, and then, so I guess let's just start with that question and then, We'll go on to the next one. Like, you know, what is to stop, you know, obviously exchanges as centralized entities holding coins, participating in stake, like that is centralization and that is an attack vector for a large government. What's to stop a large government from actioning, you know, taking action on that attack vector? Right. So like basically, uh, yeah, if there's one major government or possibly you know, multiple major governments um, collude to force the um, exchanges to um, just to use their coins to attack the network, um, I get, it's definitely possible. And, and in that case, it's definitely the, there's definitely a possibility that the coins of those exchanges will be slashed as well, right? Because ultimately the slashing formulas don't really care about why you did something. They just care about kind of what happened and what behavior, uh, provable behavior took place. Uh, so, and exchanges are aware, are, are going to be aware of that. And users who are considering putting their coins into exchanges are aware of that, right? And so there's definitely kind of layers of uh, incentive that I think could, could drive people to uh, have safeguards against this sort of thing. There's also a possibility that that will all fail and that there would be an attack that happens, but I'm definitely, I'm not the sort of person that thinks that a single 51% attack is going to be the end of Ethereum. Like I think if an attack happens once and then, you know, 10 million ETH uh, gets uh, just erased out of existence, then that's the sort of thing that I mean, could easily just scare pretty much everyone into never trusting an exchange again, in which case, and that would be, that wouldn't be the worst outcome either. Like, I guess, the way that I think about this, right, is that if you have a slashing mechanism that you can kind of mathematically prove that every time an, a, an attack happens, a bunch of coins get burned. And so the number of coin of um, attacks um, that happen is kind of bounded above by basically, if not people's willingness to burn coins, at least people's willingness to uh, kind of take extreme risks. And uh, at, the, at the end of the day, there's a limit to that. I guess the follow-up on that is have, have you discovered a way to make slashing something that is objective? Um, and then in the case that there is slashing, does that affect the social scalability of a protocol like Ether? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, so we've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the various different uh, kind of categories of attacks. Um, and there's some categories of attacks that are easier to prove than others, right? So the traditional line of nightmare attack, the 51% attack, is actually the easiest to detect, right? And Casper FFG is specifically designed around making a 51% kind of reversion attacks approvable, right? Because 
if two-thirds finalize one chain and then two-thirds go back and finalize a conflicting chain, there is this intersection of uh, one-third that where you can just show, hey, look, this particular subset of participants and assigned two conflicting messages that they shouldn't have signed. And so you can pretty much just mathematically, you know, well, you, you don't even need to do anything, right? There's just already rules in the protocol by which those conflicting messages can be included and their money can get burned. The harder, another case is attacking the network by going offline. Uh, and then we have an inactivity leak for that. The harder cases have to do with censorship. So if, uh, if more than 51% of participants collude to basically not include uh, transactions from anyone else. And censorship, you can't uh, kind of slam dunk prove mathematically to a, to a completely offline observer. And the reason is basically that sense, like, censorship is ultimately kind of isomorphic to the victim going offline, right? Like if I censor you, um, then to someone else that, that doesn't really look distinguishable from you just not speaking anything in the first place. Um, and, and so in those cases, like the thing that you can do is you can at least come up with gadgets that would allow online observers to kind of automatically detect who is at fault, right? So I wrote about this in the context of a blog post on a 99% fault tolerant consensus and censorship detection gadgets. There were a couple of posts on this where basically it turns out that you actually can kind of create consensus algorithms, you can call them, that go all the way up to 99% fault tolerance, so above 51%, with this very key condition that they require everyone, including kind of clients trying to observe the consensus, to always be online with a, a fairly low bound on the latency. And so that's not the sort of thing you want to be basing your, your blockchain on because in reality, people go offline all the time. But it is the sort of thing that you could theoretically kind of program in and have running as a process in the background so that at least the set of nodes that is online during an attack would all come up with the same answer in terms of who is at fault. So that's the best that we have so far. So I want to get into the topic of hard forks in Ethereum's social contract. Uh, so in Ethereum development, we are committed to hard forking in these changes, these improvements that we are making. And we're also going to hard fork in proof of stake and an entirely new chain. Um, excuse me. Yeah, that's not a hard fork. That's just a new chain. And then after proof of stake is implemented and ETH 2.0 is rolled out, uh, there's probably still going to be, you know, it's going to turn into Ethereum 2.x where we... Further with more R&D, we find more things that we want to get included, but that's probably going to take hard forks. Uh, so what is your opinion on the long-term relationship of hard forks in Ethereum? And is there ever going to, do you believe in the calcification of a blockchain over time? I definitely think that Ethereum's social contract should kind of move more and more somewhat to being, a, to being more Bitcoin-y over time. Um, I think currently, you know, it's still early days and the Ethereum community has, uh, I think, uh, broadly decided that the Ethereum protocol was not complete unless uh, proof of stake and sharding, for example, are included. And so that just requires fairly radical changes to introduce them. But over time, as uh, those basics get included, that, you know, and I'm sure you've seen the roadmap uh, that, uh, that I published, uh, the diagram that I put out on Twitter that kind of talks about kind of ETH 1.x and ETH 2 and ETH 2.x of especially over the next five to ten years and after the proof of stake and sharding and the merge the changes that come after that actually are pretty marginal right 
they're the sort of changes that significantly improve the platform, but they don't kind of fundamentally alter the things that the platform does and how it really works uh, deep down, right? So things like uh, replacing Merkle trees with as zero knowledge proofs or poor polynomial commitments, uh, things like replacing Casper FFG with Casper CBC, right? Like, you know, there's these deep philosophical differences between proof of work and proof of stake, but there aren't really deep philosophical differences between Casper FFG and Casper CBC. Like, they have different philosophies, but there aren't really kind of people who like fundamentally disagree with one approach or agree with the other. The differences between the two are much more just plain old technical. And then I mentioned things on the zero knowledge proof side. I um, you know, mentioned there's some other technical improvements that we're looking into also in a scenario, oh, um, more efficient uh, ways of uh, just verifying uh, things, potentially different signature schemes, post-quantum upgrades. So after ETH2, it definitely is looking like it's a kind of technical improvement within the same framework, which is more restrictive, right? Right now, it's kind of complete redesign. After ETH2, it goes from complete redesign to incremental technical improvement within the same framework. And then um, in my roadmap, I, point, I do have this kind of ending point where I basically say that after this ending point, uh, there's basically no need for kind of much more improvement except for make, right? And I, I know like early on uh, when we didn't really understand the space as much, like we thought there might need to be an Ethereum 3.0 and a 4.0 and a 7.0, but I actually do increasingly think that an Ethereum 3.0 might never be necessary and Ethereum 2.x might actually end up being the end of history. Like, there might be cryptographic uh, changes that, uh, that might have to happen 20 years from now and 30 years from now, and we might discover some really cool new lattice-based thing. We might discover some totally new type of cryptography that allows us to do things we couldn't uh, do before. And that, so we might have, go from Ethereum 2.x to Ethereum 2.y and then 2.z, but like really the amount of substantive change that needs to happen should only go down over time and basically in part because uh, you can just do more and more of what you need through layer two protocols like roll ZK roll-up, optimistic roll-up, like all of these roll-ups where you can experiment with pretty much whatever computational model you want. And I think the level of uh, kind of disruption that the community will accept will just naturally go down over time, right? And that's not even because the existing Ethereum community really wants it to, but just because there's going to be more and more stakeholders, right? Like even right now, there's just so many stakeholders in Ethereum that most of uh, us have never even heard of. You know, there's a bunch of people building applications. There's people holding money in Ether. There's people holding money in DAI. There's people using cryptocurrency for payments. There's random uh, international government body projects using the Ethereum blockchain um, to store... Um, to implement uh, smart contracts for more transparent and corruption-resistant procurement things. There's uh, uh, NGOs doing all sorts of things. There's like random just industrial companies in Korea and China and whatever. And uh, they're just, uh, in, in some cases, uh, pushing things onto the Ethereum mainnet. And so we de there's definitely a lot of all of these different actors. And right now, I think we're very fortunate that all of these act that especially the more serious actors out of all the ones that I mentioned are just, uh, are just doing tests. But over time, 
you know, there are these applications that are going to hit the mainnet, and then also just the number of people using and even holding assets issued on Ethereum is going to increase. And so there's just going to be more and more pressure to just like, hey, keep things steady and focus on making sure things don't break. And, and I think uh, the 2.x roadmap does uh, kind of na is naturally compatible with uh, kind of us shifting more and more into that mode over time. Do you feel like the current Ethereum community is is going to jive well with this idea of ossification? Personally, I think that ossification is more socially scalable. Like you said, a lot of other people are joining into the Ethereum uh, ecosystem. They're becoming dependent on the Ethereum ecosystem. And it's difficult to kind of uh, grasp around all of them and make sure all of them are represented around changes. Um, but it looks like the Ethereum strategy right now really has a lot to do with, with coordinating. Like, do you, I could see a world where coordination very soon, maybe even before Ethereum 2.0 is able to really get put into place, uh, starts to break down because there are so many uh, people that are jumping in Microsoft, uh, Deloitte, you know, who name it, you know, the, this ecosystem is growing very quickly and a lot of stakeholders are, are jumping in. Like, are you scared at all that coordination will fail before you plan it? Are you plan on it failing and you, you plan on ossification happening? Hmm. That's definitely a really valid concern. And I think uh, regarding just the ETH 2.0 switch specifically, I feel like uh, at this point, uh, discontinuing the ETH 2.0 switch would be much more controversial than going through the ETH 2.0 switch. And so, and in general, even from some of the the, the kind of institutional actors I talk to, they generally kind of understand that it's uh, an important and necessary thing. So it does feel like that's uh, kind of going to uh, just happen. Um, the, but the place where, and I think there are going to end up being, being uh, challenges, right? I think so first of all, there's definitely kind of an internal divide in the Ethereum community between people who are more pro ossification and more and versus people who are more pro kind of let's uh, take the facts that we have off chain governance and really be proud of it. And there definitely are uh, kind of some uh, sometimes kind of clashes uh, between these two camps. So like uh, I mean, you could argue that ProcPow is an instance of one of these clashes. You could argue that. Uh, some of the block reward funding EIPs that have um, some of the funds recovery EIPs are an example of these clashes. And I definitely expect those clashes to continue. And potentially we'll see newer clashes that come from uh, some of the newer actors that uh, start participating in the Ethereum space. And I uh, there's definitely in different ways that that could uh, uh, turn out. And I definitely think that, that there is something to say for the arguments that if things completely go to hell, then uh, the kind of the equilibrium is that everyone kind of turtles up in their own shell and the protocol just basically switches to being ossified at whatever point it is when that happened. And it's possible that, that it's a matter of time until then, or it's also, or it's possible that uh, kind of the, the core development community will continue being very cohesive for a lot, for the long term. It's, these are definitely things that are difficult uh, to, to predict. And I guess, like, 
I personally am just hoping that uh, kind of the ship keeps uh, keeps going long enough for all of, at least the, the technical uh, developments that that I consider kind of necessary to the core of uh, of Ethereum's uh, progress get to uh, get included. And then once it gets to that uh, kind of critical points, then if everything after that happens on layer two protocols and rollups, then that's fine with me. One thing in the Ethereum community that's become particularly salient lately is the concept of minimum viable issuance as a monetary policy. So I have a couple of questions surrounding this. Uh, how does how do we even determine what is minimum minimally viable? Is that even an objective thing that we are able to measure? And then when it comes to actually implementing this as a monetary policy into Ethereum, how do we do that over the long term without constantly hard forking in a new monetary policy? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, in the short term, minimal viable issuance should be interpreted as uh, this kind of social contract, basically because we are um, doing proof of stake and it's very possible that we'll have to do like one economic hard fork to the proof of stake uh, protocol about like a year in the worst case maybe two two years after it comes out it, just because we learned something about its economic properties that we didn't know at the beginning so while the ethereum protocol is still more in, in this phase where a lot of changes could happen i think it should be inter viewed as a kind of statement of uh, what our goals are in terms of what issuance should be changed to um in the long uh, in the longer term i think uh, and you can view minimal viable issuance as being not so much you kind know, of the social contract but rather kind of the explanation for why um the par parameters like issuance are set at the values of which they are like basically like <clears throat> it it seemed empirically that these parameters are able to motivate a particular amount of ETH to, to be staking at a reasonable cost and uh, lower parameters would have been too risky, higher parameters would have been too inflationary. So that's one way to look at it. I have a kind of thought more theoretically about can you turn minimal viable issuance into a much more formalized thing? So, and I did come up with a reason, with an interesting thought experiment in this regard. So like, for example, you could imagine a protocol where issuance is guaranteed to decrease by 20% or 10% or some amount every year, except every time there's a 51% attack, um, issuance just bumps up by a factor of four, right? So imagine issuance and then there's issuance that goes down, 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 slowly, slowly down. Someone attacks it back up by a factor of four, down, down, down. And what this would guarantee is that if, for example, you have a 10% uh, a annual uh, kind of rate of decline, and so it would take a uh, was it about uh, six and a six, six and a half or seven years uh, for it to, for it to have or fourteen years for it to quarter? Then, on average, this would just target the blockchain being fifty one percent attacked once every fourteen years. And if it gets fifty one percent attacked, more issuance would go up. If it gets fifty one percent attacked, less issuance would go down. Right. So, if we really wanted to kind of enshrine issuance being minimally viable into a protocol rule, like that would be one kind of interesting and fun way to do it. But I, mean, I don't know if that's something worth actually do, uh, doing at this point. So yeah, that kind of leads me to my next question. So that, that's an interesting mechanism to always ensure that we are actually where minim, minimum viable issuance actually is. Is that even the right spot to be or do we want to be right above MVI? And then again, like how it, it, 
it doesn't even seem like it's possible to really define where MVI is on this right. broad spectrum of, of issuance. And so do we have to like guess, guess where it is and hope we got it right and then assume that it's appropriately low? Yeah, it, it's definitely hard, right? Because we don't know under what conditions 51% attacks would happen. We don't know what kinds of 51% attacks people want to make. Do they want to completely break the network? Do they want to just like gather up 60% of the mine of the, the validators and then just do some kind of low grade influence to just keep on front running everyone forever? So do something that's beneficial to them, harmful to the network, but never harmful enough that we would actually fork over it. Do they uh, want to do something else? So the the parameter is definitely kind of subjective to, to some extent. Um, I mean, if we want to kind of force the, um, a kind of objective cap on the issuance uh, that can happen uh, to kind of satisfy uh, holders' uh, desire for stability, then you could always do that. Like you could always uh, kind of say that you know you're not going to issue more than two million coin, uh, coins every year or something like that. But in there, there's definitely a very real sense in which minimal viable issuance is more an art than a science. Uh, one thing we wanted to to ask about is uh, your 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 thoughts behind the social contract of a blockchain versus the nodes of a blockchain. So, like Bitcoin and Bitcoiners very very proudly say that like the the Bitcoin code is or the Bitcoin is run by code and there's no human involvement. Uh, but then people like Hazu say that there is you know there's always this inevitable social contract that's involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because people choose to run the node. So how, how do you see the relationship between a social contract and nodes running, like hardware versus, versus brain? Yeah, the physical network versus yeah. the people. Yeah, so I, mean, I think Bitcoin definitely has a social contract. And if it didn't, then I think uh, the guy who uh, uh, very cleverly generated um, 186 billion Bitcoins for himself back in 2010 uh, should uh, uh, really deserves to keep his money. Um, so at the very least, you know, like just the possibility of technical bugs, right? Clearly, uh, you know, the facts that people are willing to hard fork the clients to resolve technical bugs shows that there is some kind of social contract other than, you know, just, uh, whatever, whatever it is that's uh, in the source code of, of uh, one particular client at some particular point in time. Um, so social contracts exist and social contracts are very important, but, at the same time, there's a lot of uh, different kinds of social contracts that you can have. So you can have social contracts that value immutability more. You can have social contracts uh, that value and uh, different uh, kind of trade-offs between things like functionality and security. Uh, you can have uh, social contracts uh, that value uh, kind of performance. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, different uh, kind of cultures and uh, social contracts that you can have. And then another important thing is that there are things other than social contracts or kind of structural parameters other than social contracts uh, that can influence uh, how how a blockchain evolves and how difficult it is for a blockchain to change. Uh, So one example of this would be like, does everyone run the same implementation or are there five different implementations, each of which have 20% market share? Um, Are... Are people running kind of the same version? Are they are people running different versions? And there's also things like 
who funds client uh, developments, for example, there's uh, kind of, is there a separation between kind of research teams and development teams, or are they all kind of basically the same group of people? So, and there's also like how many people use full nodes, how many people use light nodes, how many people use something like Infura. So I think, uh, and if the combination of uh, technical factors and the social factors, I think are both kind of very important in influencing the actual kind of protocol outcomes that a blockchain has. So we had a uh, Nick Carter on the podcast a while ago, and I've been hammering on this question for basically every guest since then. And so the question is, what values does, when I asked it for Nick, it was what values does Bitcoin instantiate in its code? And then we also asked this to Rune, uh, Rune Christensen about MakerDAO, uh, because any sort of crypto economic protocol is always by the people for the people, right? And so there's a certain amount of and, and I, Nick also called Bitcoin like a political system. It's a system for expressing one's values about the world. And specifically, Bitcoin is all the values of Bitcoin are about fairness. No one has control over the money spigot, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Rune Christensen said that the values of Maker are like permissionless access to credit and stability and financial services. What values do you think are instantiated in Ethereum? That's a very good uh, question. And I think, uh, I mean, first, just openness and uh, kind of ability of anyone to participate is uh, something that's kind of both very important to Ethereum people and something that's uh, inherently, uh, I think, a feature of uh, the network and of the code. Um, neutrality, uh, so uh, not the protocol, not kind of explicitly favoring any particular actors. Um, trust minimization as um, another pretty important one, uh, censorship resistance, uh, and just you know, guarantee that the thing that the thing that runs is the thing that you that you that that'll keep running, and that this is a network that's intended to just kind of be rel uh, be reliable and be there. Um, also, just kind op of openness to experimentation. Uh, so. There's not just one thing that you can do with Ethereum. You know, there's you know, the money Legos meme. Uh, that there's like all, a whole bunch of, uh, of exponentially many different uh, things that you could uh, build, build on top of the platform. I would probably say those are the main ones. David is the the person who minted the Lego money meme. So it started here, man. Actually, so I said I started saying money Legos and and it kind of caught fire. But then somebody picked up a slide from 2014 of Vitalik giving a presentation, which it had money Lego in the title. I'm like, oh, well, got got robbed by Vitalik. <laughs> Well, I think that was the Legos of crypto finance. Money logo is a bit catchier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so continuing on the whole uh, values and, and blockchain systems, on Eric Weinstein's podcast, you called cryptocurrencies or blockchains digital nations. Uh, can mm -hmm. you kind of comment on what, what that means to you and, and can you just expand on that thought? Yeah, so I think blockchains and blockchain communities, and they're a very interesting uh, kind of social political beast unto themselves. Uh, so they kind of are open source software, but they're also not just open source software. They are kind of like religions, but they're also not just religions. They are, you know, kind of like um, organizations, but they're not just organizations or kind of uh, like um, nations in, in the sense that, you know, they have their own currencies, they have their own systems of rules that they enforce, they have their own system for providing security for, for the um, 
implementation of those rules, but they're also not just that. So blockchains and also the communities that form around them are this kind of really interesting thing that kind of combines uh, diff um, different aspects of all of those things together. And there's definitely a lot of parallels in terms of uh, uh, how they operate, right? So like with nations, you have nationalism and you know, with cryptocurrencies, you have maximalism, right? With uh, you know, nations, uh, you have flags with uh, big uh, cryptocurrencies, you have logos and you have like the lightning flag that you would put onto your Twitter. You have the kind of the dot ETH that you put on, uh, onto your Twitter. So there, it's this uh, kind of interesting mix of uh, kind of both providing a, fun, um, a, f a set of kind of core functions uh, that people rely on and also having this uh, kind of community and culture around the thing and, uh, and around, um, around the systems that provide those functions. So, you know, there's... Uh, I think just observing uh, cryptocurrency communities and observing how cryptocurrencies have been evolving and interacting with each other is just such an interesting window into a kind of human nature and even kind of why certain things happen the way that they happen in the in the wider world. One thesis or idea behind what the role of a government is, is to just be a value management system. Like a government sets the rules for that value to be managed fairly among all of its participants. And then The Sovereign Individual, which is a book that's very, very popular in the crypto space, talks about how uh, the power of the government is going to be significantly diminished in the future because the ability to control money or manage values can be relegated elsewhere, specifically to what he called internet, internet cyber monies. Uh, and so do you think that that future is, is playing out? And do you think that blockchains as value management systems are going to reduce the role of governments in the future? Yeah, and uh, I actually read The Sovereign Individual only a couple of weeks ago. And it's definitely a really important and interesting issues to think about. And I think one important place where I depart from the Austrians is that I don't really believe in this mindset that kind of control over a currency is the fundamental thing that makes a um, that makes a government or a nation be a government or a nation. And you know this is kind of the core sine qua non of all of its um, kind of other powers for good and for ill. So I, I don't believe in this. And one example of a reason why is like. Countries in the Eurozone, for example, right? Like they do not have independent monetary policy, but they still have in, in theory independent policies and a whole bunch of other things. And there's a bunch of currencies that just use the US dollar and they do things that the US uh, does not like. The, there's uh, a lot of countries that have their own currencies, but they still have uh, very big problems because they're kind of afraid of being invaded by someone. Right. And so you know, monetary power is definitely kind of an important lever. And especially if you look at things like kind of sanctions and weaponized interdependence and all of these kind of geopolitical and, or network political issues, then there's a lot of important things there. But at the same time, you know, the physical world exists, the, the need for kind of physical security exists, the, the need for um, kind of boring meat space, uh, things like uh, kind of healthcare provision and the kind of the, the, the partial aspects of healthcare provision that, that, that are public goods for various economic reasons, uh, those exist. Uh, there's uh, roads and the needs to uh, manage roads, congestion, like all of these uh, different things. 
And so the fact that money is you know, some is now entering into the realm of cyberspace doesn't take away either the the kind of the need for those functions to be provided somehow or the yeah, ability for and of men with guns to enforce things in the physical world and um another thing that we're seeing right is that and, and this is something that uh, david friedman uh, predicted in his book future imperfect you know a very long time ago is that we're seeing kind of an increase in privacy or at least the ability to have privacy over the internet with uh, the growth of uh, end-to-end encryption with uh, cryptocurrencies, with cryptocurrencies bearing zero-knowledge proofs. Um, potentially, I mean, I'm hoping over the next decade, homomorphic encryption and obfuscation. And so the, and of the cyberspace is definitely a place that kind of naturally favors privacy in a lot of respects. But at the same time, we're seeing just continually ongoing decreases in privacy and meat space, right? Biometrics uh, being uh, used uh, more and more in uh, different places. Uh, you're seeing more and more surveillance cameras popping up in uh, a lot of different countries. Uh, and so we are kind of getting, uh, getting into this uh, kind of world that's defined by this contradiction, right? This contradiction between these increasingly equally important kind of cyberspace and the meat space where these two do end up kind of living by fairly different rules. And so there's a lot of kind of things that can end up being true and uh, not true at the same time in certain respects, right? There's things that are true about the cyber aspects of our lives, but that are less true about you know, the meat space aspects of our lives, especially in terms of uh, kind of visibility and government control. And all of these so I, mean, I definitely do strongly believe that uh, privacy in cyberspace is an uh, important, uh, I definitely think that uh, privacy in cyberspace is an important counterbalance to a lack of privacy in meat space um, and kind of the growing uh, lack of privacy in meat space, which is why I've uh, been increasingly kind of working on zero knowledge proofs and pushing for zero knowledge proofs in Ethereum. It's like I've I've been kind of supporting things like kind of like decentralized messaging and status and things like this. Um, But so, that's one side of things. But then the other side of the thesis um, in the sovereign individual, right, is that in the sovereign individual, actually, and as the thesis is kind of completely compatible with uh, the uh, possibility of growing a surveillance and meat space, right? The, the thesis in the sovereign individual is that we're not going to get um, more freedom through ability to just outright resist governments. So the, the thesis is that we're going to get more freedom through growing competition between governments and so basically like the thesis is saying that the gains from centralization in the 21st century are actually just not that large and if you even just look at the coronavirus as kind of one example right like you if you try to think about kind of who the the winners are like the winners are in a lot of cases the smaller countries right like the 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 countries that we look at as kind of examples of success um you know we talk about kind of Sweden, like the small, like the the smaller East Asian countries, and we talk about um, and if even individual states and and some individual provinces of uh, various countries, and so it's like you can kind of uh, kind of see the case for why and if just what what they call devolution uh, and if 
growing uh, decentralization of uh, political power into uh, more more local jurisdictions, having more sort of de facto power is something that is uh, going to happen. Um, though, in, as I mentioned in my in review of uh, the book on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, there's also uh, challenges that come with that kind of model. And then there's also just the question of, well, there does exist this kind of pressure to build these kind of worldwide public goods, especially in terms of kind of scientific research and kind of the info sphere and you know global climate and all these topics and, and how that'll end up getting managed. And in competition between countries is definitely something where public kind of blockchain networks can kind of participate kind of fairly easily because you know if you have a lot of countries then there is the need for something to kind of serve as the glue between them. And serving as the glue can mean a lot of different things, but at least um, in a couple of contexts, and you can see public blockchains having a m more of a role in that sense. So, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's a it's a complicated world that we're uh, getting into. Absolutely. Thank you for teasing that out. Uh, I I actually agreed with a lot that you said. I remember you posted a tweet thread, and I vehemently disagreed with a lot of the things that you were kind of teasing out. But um, kind of hearing you uh, work your you know kind of work through your logic. Uh, there's a lot of things that I do agree about kind of like your assessment of how the world is, is growing uh, either uh, with the predictions of the sovereign individual or kind of contrary to the predictions in the sovereign individual. I kind of want to bring this back and zoom out to Bitcoin and Ethereum together. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think that these two systems compete. A lot of people will also argue that they're complementary. I'm curious how you view both systems together and uh, where you see them kind of either going together. You know, where do you see Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, kind of interacting into the future? Yeah, and so I definitely see Bitcoin and Ethereum as uh, you know, focusing on uh, somewhat uh, different areas, as I mentioned before. And, you know, there's Bitcoin uh, just focusing pretty, at least as far as I can tell, pretty strongly on being kind of an asset and um, a store of value first and uh, other things second, whereas Ethereum is uh, you know, definitely valuing the network more than the asset, though the asset ends up uh, being valuable as a consequence of uh, people um, using the network and, and uh, needing the asset inside of the network. So there's kind of different theses. There's uh, a lot of differences uh, be between the systems. I could easily see both surviving into the fairly long term. Like, I mean, I definitely don't believe that there is just kind of this really massive pressure for one one of them to win and uh, for everything else to end up being much smaller than that. I can easily see there being kind of multiple large uh, assets uh, going on going on for a very long time. And I mean, I think even the crypto spaces experience up until now really proves that. Right? Like, I mean, you see assets like even you know, XRP and then, you know, Bitcoin Cash and then BSV and uh, and then going down and like EOS and um, things much worse than EOS um, that just continue maintaining value for, for a very long time and that even kind of seem to maintain, uh, kind of maintain their value and go up and down roughly and locks up with Bitcoin, right? Like they sometimes go up, sometimes go down, but in general, like I've been tracking the kind of the other share of the uh, mark of the market cap dominance chart, and it seems to be pretty stable for quite some time. So, I mean, this surprises me. Like, I mean, I definitely, for example, even 
expected BSV to crash down really hard. Like I remember just how proud I was when uh, the day that BSV launched and became its own asset, I kind of moved all my BCH onto, Pol onto Poloniex and dumped the, S the SV half. Uh, but uh, I mean, the thing has staying power. And if something like a fake Toshi crazy coin can uh, maintain a value, then uh, and I definitely don't think that kind of, there are fairly small scale difference between uh, Bitcoin and, and uh, Ethereum or whatever differences there end up being. It's just going to kind of peel them off into some kind of mortal combat where one has to come out on top and the other reaches zero. Hmm. So, yeah, I hope for peace. Are you excited I, for the having? Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a birthday and it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I only wish it could have happened on um, International Star Wars Day instead of uh, a bit later, but you know, there's uh, can't ask for everything. And, uh, I mean, what? So International Star Wars Day is May fourth. So mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to miss it by about a week. Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vitalik. Thank you so much for giving us your time. This was a fantastic interview. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, as if they don't already know, uh, where can they follow you, or where should they go? Or what are, do you have a request of our listeners of any sorts? I have a Twitter, uh, Vitalik Buterin. I have a website, Vitalik.ca. I have a Reddit, Vibuterin. I have uh, any research account, uh, Vibuterin. So it depends, I guess, if you're, well, if you're interested in uh, hot takes or uh, longer comments or research pieces or 4,000 word uh, think pieces about deep mathematical and philosophical or cryptographic topics. So I don't know, you take your pick. Fantastic. Christian? Vitalik, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this was a lot of fun. For everyone out there, please follow the show at POV CryptoPod. Make sure to give us those five-star reviews. And you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Thanks, Vitalik, for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you.